0: Our text for today is from the book of Acts chapter 5. We're going to be digging in some of these specific verses, so I do encourage you, open up God's Word. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, if there is a church Bible near you, go ahead and open that up. Acts chapter 5, and we're going to be starting Acts chapter 5 on page 914 of our church Bibles. Page 914. And as we turn to God's Word this morning, let me set the stage. Let me remind you of the story so far. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has suffered, died, risen, victorious over death and the grave. He has ascended into heaven. He has sent His Holy Spirit upon His church, upon His people. And He's given to them, He's given indeed to us today, a mission. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And the gospel is spreading. The good news about Jesus is spreading and spreading. The church is growing and growing. Thousands and thousands of people are becoming followers of this Jesus of Nazareth. Acts chapter 5 verse 14 actually says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Multitudes of both men and women were now following Christ. And this means that the religious authorities and religious leaders in Jerusalem The party of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they made up what was known as the Sanhedrin. They were growing very disturbed that the followers of Christ were growing and growing. And you might remember a couple of weeks ago, Peter and John were put into prison and then they were eventually released. Now in this story, all of the 12 apostles have been arrested and thrown into prison And for various reasons that we'll get into later on, they are released. But it says this in verse 40 and 41. That when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is the name of Jesus. They're arrested. They let them go. But before they let them go, the text says very simply, they beat them. We don't know for sure, but it's very possible, in fact, very likely that they would have used something that looked a lot like this, a terrible, terrible instrument of the time. Paul refers to how five times he received what was called the 40 lashes minus one, that is to be struck 39 Times with this cat of nine tails where there is bone or metal connected to the strands of these scourges to do maximum damage to the human body, to the human flesh, to rip flesh out of the backs of those that they were beating. This is all 12 of the apostles. You can almost see them walking back no doubt there would have been drips of blood. There would have been a trail of blood. You could have followed that trail of their own blood back to wherever it was that they were staying. But then it says again that they left the presence of the council doing what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. Now they're not crazy and they're not like enjoying the physical torment and pain, of course not, but in this they see some kind of purpose and mission and even connected to the very dishonor and the sufferings of Christ himself, but still the question is for us, how were they able to do this? to suffer such opposition and such persecution and still be able to rejoice and give thanks to God and rejoice in the name of Jesus Christ. Where did this strength, where does this courage come from? Now, we might be tempted to think 2,000 years later that it's because they, unlike us, they got to be with Jesus, they got to see Jesus face to face. I mean, they were there when he was arrested and they were there during his earthly ministry and they saw him raise Lazarus from the grave. They saw his miracles and he walked on water and he fed the 5,000. And they saw the empty tomb and they saw the living Jesus Christ and the nail marks in his hands and the wounds in his side. And we think to ourselves today, of course I wouldn't be afraid of anything. If I could see the living Jesus Christ, if I could have been there during the resurrection, I would go out there rejoicing as well but you're forgetting. Do you remember what Jesus said to Thomas, as we call him, Doubting Thomas, who reached out his hand and touched the very wounds of Christ? He said, Thomas, do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus didn't say, better are those who have believed and yet have not seen. You know, sometimes you think, well, yeah, we're better than they were. We still believe and we haven't been able to see them. Jesus said, blessed are those. He means that we today who have not seen Jesus actually have received an even greater blessing than those who are the eyewitnesses of his own resurrection. Now that seems counterintuitive and maybe hard to believe, but you remember Jesus said of the Holy Spirit that he was going to send, he said, it is better for you that I go away, for when I go, I will send the counselor, I'll send the helper, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. It's better that I go away, Jesus said. Perhaps we're also forgetting the thousands and thousands of Christians the generation after the apostles, Christians who never saw Jesus and yet believed, and all of the suffering, all of the persecution that they endured, this is just a fact of history of the Roman Empire, and Christians led into the Roman Colosseum and into the Roman location where all of these terrible things would take place, and the wild beasts and animals that would come, and again it is recorded at times, Christians would be singing hymns of praise to God there in the Roman arena. And if we wonder how in the world they could possibly do these things, perhaps we're also forgetting there are 360 million Christians in the world today who live in countries and in regions of the world where persecution is considered quote-unquote significant. That just last year, close to 6,000 of our brothers and sisters were murdered for the sake of their faith in Jesus Christ. And last year, 5,000 church buildings were destroyed. And yet, still they believe, and still the gospel goes and it spreads. How? How can we have that same type of courage and faith? Well, it's because we have today the exact same thing they had and really needed 2,000 years ago. We have the exact same thing that they had, and it's what we see described here in verses 19 and 20 of the text, if you're following along. The 12 apostles have been arrested and they've been put in prison. But it says in verse 19 that during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now look, again, supernatural thing. The angel comes. He lets them go. But they're out of prison. I, maybe you're different than me, but if I'm these apostles and I'm out of prison, the angel said, I want you to go back to the temple and tell them all the words of this life. He didn't say when. Didn't say it had to be right away. I mean, they could have slinked off and kind of You know, gathered their wits about them and maybe came back in another time when, when the pressure was off. But no, it says when, at what time of day, at daybreak, as soon as they possibly could, they were back there. Again, this faith and this courage, where does it come from? It says they were to speak to all of the people all of the words of this life, the power of the word. Of God, and specifically it says the words of this life, capital L in my English translation, life. Now, the Greek word here for life is not the Greek word bios, by which we get words like biology, which speaks of our physical life. The Greek word here for life is the Greek word zoe, where we get the name Zoe. We were going to name our. We thought about naming our daughter Zoe, but we had a friend whose daughter' name was Chloe. So we thought Chloe and Zoe too cutesy. But Zoe isn't just our physical life, but it is indeed our eternal life. It is that deep spiritual life It's what we call here at Our Father extraordinary life, extraordinary life in Christ. Ordinary people, extraordinary life. Zoe life, it's the life that you were made for. It's the life you were designed by God to have, to experience, to enjoy. It's the life that we had in the garden all those years ago. Perfect love and communion with God, perfect love and communion with one another, and all of this world healed, perfect and, 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 and harmonious in every way. And it's that Zoe life, that extraordinary life that we lost, and it's that same life that one day we will have again in all of its fullness because of the death and the resurrection and the reigning and ruling and the second coming of God, the second coming of Christ to this world. We will have that life, that Zoe life, the life that you were meant for and made for once again. And until that time we can begin to have, at least in part, to experience, to have a taste. When you come for communion, you take the bread and the wine, the very presence of Christ, his body and blood, you take a sip and a taste of the future life into your life right now. It's just a taste of it, but it's a real taste. This is what they had. Now, I want to show you a picture of a friend of mine. That is Edge, the golden retriever who does not retrieve. But as you can see from his t-shirt, he's a big fan of our Ride the River and our student ministry here at Our Father. This is Edge. We love our dog. And I sometimes I look at him and look how happy he is. And as long as he gets his meal in the morning, he gets his food in the evening, and he sits at our dinner table, and he knows that if he sits right at my feet, I'll give him just a little tiny bit of whatever meat we might have, maybe three times during the meal. If I rub his tummy and I scratch him behind the ears, and if he can go outside every so often and try to carry around the biggest stick he can find, he's great. His life is great. I am jealous of my own dog at times. When I see him lying there without a care in the world, he's not worried about the past. He's got no shame about the past. He has no worries about the future. Why? Because my dog, Edge, has not been made in the image of God. And as much as I love him, and who knows what will happen in the new heavens and the new earth, okay? But edge was not intended, made, or designed for this Zoe life, real life. This is why we are so often miserable in our life, if I can say that, why we're often discontent about the things in our life. It's why we're striving for the things we're striving for. Maybe it's some kind of career advancement and once I finally get the corner office, or maybe it's this relationship and if only my marriage was a little bit better, or maybe if this boy in my class likes me or this girl thinks I'm really awesome and they write me a note or send me a text or I made the team or I did some kind of a cheap, whatever it is we're looking for it's never ever you know this it's never gonna be enough because you were made for so much more so much more This is why I quote this a lot, Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher and theologian, mathematician. He said, it is our wretchedness that actually proves our greatness. Because who is more unhappy at no longer being a king than a deposed king? It's actually because we are unhappy, it's because we are sometimes discontent with our life that actually shows us we were meant for so much more and that we used to have so much more, but we lost it. C.S. Lewis said, if I find within myself a desire which nothing else in this world can satisfy, the most logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. You were made for a deeper and richer and fuller life. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, We have this treasure now in what he calls jars of clay, speaking about our frail human flesh. And he says, we fix our eyes on that which is unseen. We fix our eyes on that which is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And you are all citizens if you are in faith in Jesus Christ, citizens of another world, another kingdom and meant for so much more. Now, how can we be sure that that is true and that that life can be ours now and is coming in its fullness? Well, verses 30 and 31. This is Peter speaking again to the Sanhedrin. They've been released miraculously from the jail. They come to get them, and they actually go willingly back. Again, the strength of their faith. And we get a hint of it here in verse 30. Peter says, "'The God of our fathers,' that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the patriarchs, "'the God of our fathers raised Jesus, "'whom you killed by hanging him on a tree.'" Hanging him on a tree, this refers to Deuteronomy chapter 21, where it says, "God considers you cursed anyone who was hung upon a tree. Anyone hung upon a tree, God considers to be cursed." The God the Father considered his own son to be cursed, and indeed was cursed as he hung upon the tree of the cross so that today you might know that he considers you righteous and holy and glorious and perfect and beautiful in his eyes, that he delights in you. He wants you to be absolutely certain today that he has forgiven you and loves you and wants you to be with him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cursed is anyone, hung upon a tree, became a curse so that you might be blessed. And he experienced not just physical suffering and death, but deeply spiritual suffering and death so that you might have that spiritual life, that Zoe forevermore. This is how we know because this really happened. And it goes on to say in verse 31 that God then, God the Father, exalted Christ at his right hand as leader and as Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God exalted him to his right hand, the position of all power and all authority. Christ ascended to the throne. I don't know if you remember the story. It says that after his ascension, his disciples returned to Jerusalem, and it says they were rejoicing. Again, you would think it would be the exact opposite. They've just lost Jesus. Jesus has left them you think they would be sad and crying and passing the Kleenex box around and, and overcome with grief. But it says, no, they were rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing? Because Christ, their best friend, who still had the marks of his suffering and death, has gone to the throne of the universe, and he holds all things together by a word of his command. It means that the God who oversees every single aspect, every moment of your life, and every molecule in the universe still has the marks of his suffering and death for you. He is your best friend and he's king of it all. And they were rejoicing. And this Pharisee, I don't remember from Pastor Mike's reading, there was this Pharisee who stood up. They had arrested the twelve and they had brought them back and this uh, Pharisee named Gamaliel and Gamaliel says something really profound he says look if these guys and what they're up to is of a human, human thing it's going to fail but if it is of God he said it cannot be stopped it cannot be stopped in 70 AD the Roman Empire destroys the temple in Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin is no more And the Sadducees and the Pharisees are no more. And in just a little over 200 years, Christianity becomes the dominant force in the entire Roman Empire, taking over the entire known world at the time. In just a little over 200 years. And how did that happen? It wasn't through a military. It wasn't through a sword. It wasn't through coercion. It wasn't forced. What happened? How did it happen? It was through the Word of this life it was simply one person telling another person in one house sharing it with another house and one family to another family and it spread throughout the entire world and millions and millions of people were caught up into this love and into this extraordinary Zoe life and it happened by telling the story of Jesus now as we wrap up here I don't know if you notice this. If you you wouldn't really notice it unless you were really closely reading the Book of Acts. This uh, kind of sermon of Peter, he says, "The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, and God exalted him to the right hand, etc." This is almost, word for word, this is the exact same thing that Peter said in chapter 2 of the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. It's the same sermon he preached on Acts chapter 3 when he was standing before this same group, the Sanhedrin. It's the same sermon that he preached in Acts chapter 4 and lo and behold, if it isn't the exact same sermon that he's preaching here in Acts chapter 5. Come on, Peter, get some new material. It's like one of Pastor Abel's sermons... Same thing all the time. Yes, the same thing all the time. What we need to be reminded of the death and the resurrection and the power and the life we have in Jesus that is what we need that is where their courage came from again verse 40 and 41 they left the presence after this terrible beating they're rejoicing they were being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and then verse 42 here's the key the practical insight and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus Every day, the temple, every day, house to house, they did not cease. In other words, they were proclaiming to others, to themselves, and to their own hearts. They were reminding themselves of the truths that they already knew. They were reminding themselves of the truths they already knew. They were reminding themselves of the truths of the gospel that they already knew. That changed them, it transformed them, and it transformed the world. And I leave you with this quote from Martin Luther. This is part of a letter that he wrote to a member of his church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther said, the highest of all God's commands is this, that we ever hold up before our eyes the image of His dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He must... Daily be to our hearts the perfect mirror in which we behold how much God loves us and how well, in His infinite goodness as a faithful God, He is grandly cared for us in that He gave His dear Son for us. Do not, do not let this mirror and throne of grace be torn away from before your eyes to hold the image of christ on the cross bleeding and dying for you and the image of his empty tomb and of his glorious face do not let that be torn away from your eyes we need to be reminded every day of the truths i pray that you already know Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. I pray not just words that happens at the end of our life when we breathe our final breath, but every day, hold thou thy cross before my eyes. It shines through the gloom and points us to that life, the life you were meant for, that we had, that we're going to have again in fullness, that you have even now today in Jesus. For there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's Jesus Christ and Christ alone. To him be all the glory. Amen.